If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. My uh, grandchildren from Colorado were supposed to leave this week. I was saddened. The Lord took pity on me and canceled their flight. So they're here for another week, which is great. So I thank the Lord and enjoy it. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, you are a good God to us in so many ways. And Father, even though we go through times of difficulty and stress, and even at times sometimes great difficulty, we know, Lord, you've promised us that you would never leave us, that you would never abandon us, that you would continue to provide for us, that you grant us the strength that we need, that, Lord, you would daily supply the grace that we need that comes from you, that sustains us. And, Father, we ask that you would help us to be aware of these things and to think of these things and, again, to be grateful and to draw strength from these things, Father. We pray that you would help us to stand in the very troubled days in which we live. Help us, Father, to perhaps we may be a little less concerned about safety and security and the things that can easily cause us to worry. And we ask, Lord, you help us to think about how it is that we may primarily stand firm on the gospel. How we can stand firm against the attacks of the world that want to pull us away from you. That want to diminish and hinder and weaken our commitment to Christ and the word. Father, to do all these things, you've given to us what we are reading about here in the book of Ephesians, the armor of God. And Father, really, it's just a metaphor for the fact that uh, we are joined with Christ at salvation. We have a union with Christ that is very much our strength and our daily sustenance. And we pray that you would help us to grasp the truth of this and to live in light of it. And, Father, to enjoy the fruit of the relationship that we have with you. As always, Father, as we focus on your word now, we ask again that you would bless our time so that, Lord, that we would be focused on your word, that we would be um, able to... um, kind of block out any distractions that may cause our minds to wander. And Father, we may drink deeply from your word. And so again, we do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read to you once again from the words of Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, where he writes, beginning in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. For all the things that Paul has been talking about throughout the book of Ephesians, as he now comes to his concluding remarks, again, let me remind you of the main words or the main message, the main point that he gives to us here in verse 6, where he tells these individuals that regardless of all the things that are going on, whether it's in their lives personally, whether it's in the culture, uh, whatever temptations they're facing, whatever weaknesses they may possess, whatever conflicts that are existing, he tells them to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and tells them how they're going to do this. And this is when he begins to talk about a very popular passage, a very well-known passage, which is speaking of the armor of God. And that if we put on the whole armor of God, we will be able to stand. In fact, he tells us that we'll be able to stand against um, the craftiness of the devil himself. So here he's telling us that we have been given, to, given this by God, we have no excuse for not being able to stand. And again, the idea of standing is not the idea of just clinging and holding on and hoping that you make it to the end of the day. The idea here is to stand firm, to be that strong, faithful believer, the one who's faithful to the word of God, faithful to the commands of God, faithful to the principles of God, the one who was faithful to Christ himself, the one who is expressing and manifesting the attributes of Christ, who is uh, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to uh, be revealed in them because they are growing in Christ. These are, are individuals who are, are not whimpering in the face of these things. These aren't those who are standing and complaining, but these here are who are standing strong. The idea really is uh, in the same way that a Roman legion would stand against the enemy. They would always stand strong. They're not standing sideways, ready to run at any moment. They are standing facing the enemy. They are, they are locked together. They are disciplined, and they're ready to, to withstand whatever comes their way. They are prepared for whatever comes their way. And if you know anything about history, the Roman army was, was revolutionized the way uh, battles were fought for a very long time. Uh, their training was one that not only was rigorous, but one that continued to improve. They continued to find ways to, to do a better job, to be a better army, to be able to fight against whatever the odds may happen to be, whatever they were facing. And so as we began to go through this last week and, and dealing with um, some of the pieces of the armor, I want to jump to the third piece of armor, which after you have truth, you have righteousness, he then mentions the preparation of the gospel of peace. In the gospel... People agree with God's truth. That's what we're doing. When you, when you believe the gospel, that's what you're doing. We are agreeing with God that the gospel is truth. This is truth. I am believing what God has said. I am accepting this because it is true. I'm believing that it's true. I'm trusting in the truth of this. So people agree with God's truth by which they take their stand against error. In other words, when you believe in the gospel, you're automatically standing against all the error that's out there. You're believing what God says about reality. What God says about reality is, is that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That man is separated from God by his sin. That his sin is a big deal. And that God has remedied the situation for us through his son Christ. 
So we are standing against every single philosophy, every single religion that is out there that's contrary to what the Word of God says, which, by the way, happens to be all of it. And so that's what we're doing. We take our stand against error, and we are standing in unity. We are, we should be, we are believing the same thing when it comes to the gospel. You heard me mention before about some of my friends who are ministers in other denominations. And even though they are wrong on many things, <laughs> uh, we agree on the gospel. We agree on everything about the gospel, about what it is, how we would define it, how an individual comes to know Christ. There is a unity there. And one that is strong. And I'm grateful for that myself. And they are as well. We stand for righteousness. A righteousness that comes from Christ. A righteousness that's been established by God. And it is a righteousness that is always pitted against unrighteousness. Which is another reason why the world hates the gospel. And why the world hates believers. It is the same reason why Cain hated Abel. First John tells us. Why did Cain hate Abel? The reason is given. Because Abel's works were righteous. That's it. His works were righteous. That put a glaring spotlight on the unrighteousness of Cain. It's the same reason why people hate other individuals that are good or better than them. Why there's that jealousy at times. It's, it's not, the person's done nothing against you, but it's perceived to be against us because of how it makes us feel, or whatever the term may happen to be. And so we then hate that individual. And so that's why the world hates us. In the gospel, a person believes to righteousness. The same gospel that we believe in ministers to us by conferring on us the peace with God. We are no longer the enemies of God. We are, we are at peace with God. And it is the gospel that fosters the peace of God. And there are those who've talked about that in the past, where we have peace with God and we possess the peace of God. That peace that, that God gives us that surpasses human understanding. We could say it this way, that surpasses mere human understanding. It is that the world, they, they don't get it. They can't get it because it's spiritually discerned. The center of the gospel is always Christ. You see, Christ is our peace. Those who have received his gospel message are to live as peacemakers. In this we bear witness how God gives peace with himself, bidding others to hear and to be reconciled. And we also can have a daily peaceful composure that reflects God's sufficiency to cope with any circumstance. That's why it is important for us to continually be tested by God so that we can both keep track of and see our growth as Christians. Because our growth as Christians is not only measured by knowing more about the Word of God in the sense that we know more about the book of Mark and we know more about the book of Jeremiah, that we may know more about theology or more about the history of Israel. All of that is good. But one of the major and significant marks of a believer is how that believer behaves, how that believer responds in the moment to the various circumstances of life. Are we given to panic and absolute fear? Are we given to despair? Are, are we given to individuals who suddenly try to control all these situations and, and take matters in our hand? Or, or, or do we reflect this composure that reveals that we have absolute trust in Christ? Again, we're not trying to 
eliminate the differences that we possess as far as our personalities and the way we live our lives as believers. There are going to continue to be differences in how we approach life. But there should be those things that we all share in common. And that what that is, is that our lives do not fall apart when circumstances go awry. We may feel like our life is falling apart. In fact, our lives may be, in a sense, falling apart. And there's still that composure. There, it, there's that, I guess you could call it a centeredness, a strength that's revealed. That that's, is not based on how we were raised. It's not based on what your personality is like. It's based on that living, vital union with Christ and the relationship that we have with Christ. And so the world needs to see this. We need to manifest this and display this. This passage also speaks of the preparation of the gospel of peace for the feet. And that may refer, refer, this, may refer to a firm foundation, the solid footing that provides stability. Remember that the meta-narrative of the Bible, the meta-narrative is that large Uh, uh, that overarching story that explains reality to us. We get that from the book of Genesis. We understand why the world works the way it works because of what the book of Genesis says. The gospel is God's remedy for that. We then can stand firm on that, and that's the idea here. When we see the world falling apart, which we should expect to see that, because the world is what? Under the curse of sin. We understand that. We recognize that. We recognize that when we see great men and women, in whatever way we mean the word great, when we see them fall, when we experience betrayal, even though those things may still hurt and bother us, we don't fall apart because we're standing on the gospel. Our feet have been prepared by the gospel of Christ. So it provides stability for us, solid footing. Some have said that, well, maybe what it means more or less is that it's God-imparted, steadied composure which I think is pretty much saying the same thing. And it flows from the gospel to give one, to give the believer the ability to stand true to the gospel. We remain firm on the gospel. We remain individuals who believe in the gospel. That's why it's important that we do not allow the world, that we do not allow maybe other believers to shrink the gospel to being somehow only a three-sentence message That means in the end, we go to heaven when we die. There's so much more to it than just that. It is that which gives us stability and and meaning and understanding for all of life. That's the reach of the gospel. He also mentions, as we read from from this passage, the shield of faith as being the fourth weapon. Faith is the instrument by which the unsaved come into salvation. Faith continues to be of paramount importance in the lives of those of us who are believers. Paul says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Again, remember that when we say that, that when we talk about living by faith, that is not some mystical way to move through life. It doesn't mean that we're kind of floating through life and our head is always in the clouds and we see God in everything in some kind of a mysterious way. It's much more solid than that. It's much more palpable than that. To live by faith really simply means I believe what the Bible says and I live by it. I obey the commands of God. When, 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 I, when I, I understand the world based on what the Word of God says, I'm accepting what the Word says about that. I'm accepting what the Word says about me. When I recognize 
Again, even though I am saved, my own depravity, my own weaknesses, I'm living by faith. When I come to God in prayer, because I recognize that weakness in my life, I'm living by faith. Because I'm, that, that's what faith does. It produces obedience. Because you see your need to it. You see the reality of that. When I risk my friendship with non-believers, when I, when, I, when I put at risk the way that they might want to be friends with me, I put that at risk when I share the gospel with them, that's living by faith. Because I am believing that that message is the most important message in the world. And there's going to come a point in time when I, I'm, I need to, in a sense, spill the beans. I need to let them know why it is I'm going to church, why I'm inviting them, what it is I believe. I don't know when that opportunity is going to come for me or for you in the lives of certain individuals, but that is living by faith. That's what's what that means. When you and I are facing some kind of, a, of terminal illness, we live by faith. We believe that God has a plan. I don't know what that plan is, but I'm trusting in God. Whether, whether I die now or die later, I'm trusting God. I'm living by faith. So living by faith is, again, not only that which comes into play when we're facing death, but obviously it's not removed when we're facing death as well, or maybe some serious situation. Living by faith means that no matter what the doctors say, we continue to pray to God to help in the situation, even to deliver and heal, because we believe what he says. Again, that's, that's living by faith. That may be, for some people, the most obvious thing they think of, but we all make sure that we don't allow the pendulum to swing too far to the other side, that we don't ask for that, because there's nothing wrong with that. So we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's what John says in chapter 5 of 1 John. He also, John also agrees with Peter, that steadfast resistance to the devil is by faith. We continue to live in obedience, standing on what the Word of God says. I am trusting this to always be true. And so that's living by faith. And that's how we resist the devil. And that's what will make him flee. Here, faith is a spiritual shield because it defensively wards off what the Bible describes as fire-tipped arrows that the devil's emissaries shoot at us, which are Christ's soldiers. The idea there is that when, when we are shot, let's say, let's say the, that the darts that are coming at us are those of various types of temptations. Remember that the temptation to sin is always going to be those things that are appealing to our minds and our hearts. There are things that may be, in the beginning, pleasurable. They might even be good. There could be a lot of things. But I don't give myself over to them because I'm trusting in what God has said. That's the shield of faith. And it quenches that temptation. It loses its strength. In fact, the stronger my faith grows, the weaker those temptations become. We will never get to a point in our lives as believers that we are immune from temptation. But I think that, hopefully, that if you've been a believer for a long time, those things that may have tempted you when you're 20 are just no longer appealing. There just is no temptation there. It's just, it's not a thing anymore. And there are new temptations that may come along. But the point is, we're living by faith. It's the shield of faith, which, again, is the, our union with Christ. The devil and his demons often use people to inflict hurt on us, trying, again, to cause us to to, I guess you would say, to, to hinder our walk with the Lord, to, to diminish this or weaken this relationship we have with Christ. So he uses people to inflict hurt, to inflict hurt on us. In fact, they sometimes can work on us directly. 
Arrows of these sorts strike at God's people. Arrows that wound us by disunity. Unholy anger in thought or words. Whether you are the one who is experiencing that or maybe you are the target of that. It is sexually permissive thoughts. Sexually permissive words or sexually permissive acts. It is the temptation to indulge in drunkenness or many other things that that one may be tempted to indulge in for all kinds of reasons. It's various attitudes that assault our joy. Attitudes that assault the, the attitude of thanksgiving. It is attitudes that attack our submission to Christ and his word. It is unloving attitudes and unloving acts instead of a husband's Christ-like love for others. The arrows of the, many are, of, the air, of the enemy are many. And we can never underestimate the strength and the creativeness of the evil one to come against us. So faith is crucial. All of us as believers face the same dangers. The details may be different, but we face the, fa- the same dangers. So because of that, that should make it, on one hand, a little easier for us to be able to pray for each other. Because we know that we are very similar. The weaknesses that I face are the weaknesses that you face. The temptations that I face are the temptations that you face. The fears that I face are the, are the fears that you face. Again, some of the details may be a little different, but we are human beings. And as a result of that, we do understand each other to a fairly good degree. And as a result, we're able to pray for each other effectively and efficiently. God offers this weaponry that, he mentioned, that he's mentioning here to all of us. This is not only to some. This is for all believers of all time. After these four weapons comes the piece of armor that's called the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation may mean the helmet of protection that salvation is. Maybe the helmet as the protection which salvation supplies. Either point, it always points to salvation as being protective. It's protective in this sense. Salvation does mean deliverance. God in Christ supplies deliverance in the past sense, eternally clearing Christians from the penalty of sin that would be exacted by God if we were to be punished by him. It it clears us of that. He also gives deliverance from sin's power in the present process of struggles. An area where we really need help in our understanding and and praying for each other and really seeking to walk by faith because this hits us where we are right now as individuals, as in the present moment. And so we need deliverance from the power of sin because sin is very powerful. We should never underestimate the strength of sin, ever. Never think for a moment that you are strong enough to stand against anything on your own. The more we grow as believers, the more fearful, a healthy fear, but the more fearful we should be of sin, of temptation. I have this saying that I remind myself of often, and that is this. In in any situation, I do not want to find out how strong I am. I don't want to know that. We're just going to assume I'm going to fail. What can I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Period. Uh, When I went to, uh, this is back in 2005, when I went to Mauritius, I was going there for a month. And uh, we we had talked before, as a congregation, we talked before about uh, a lot of things, taking mission trips, what have you. And one one of the ideas or principles that everyone was kind of in agreement on was that um, only in very unusual circumstances would anyone go by themselves anywhere. And so 
when I went on this trip, a young man from the church went with me. And it wasn't that I was worried about me doing anything wrong, but that's not the point. I didn't want to find out if that was even a possibility. I wanted to have my brother with me because that really helps to fight sin. It's much more difficult to sin when there's someone with you who's watching. It's just hard, unless you're both in agreement. So make sure you pick the right person. Because <laughs> that has happened before in the case of some individuals, and we don't want to go down that road. But what was interesting was that during my time there, there was a, uh, you know, I was, I was teaching a great deal on both sides of the island of Mauritius. And I ended up teaching a great deal, which was wonderful. But there was a, um, a young Christian couple, and he had, it was some kind of a cousin, and she had gotten caught up in, in some mess with some kind of guru from India. And she was just all mixed about all kinds of things. And uh, she, she was coming to my Bible studies and, she, and she, want, she had a lot of questions and she wanted to talk. And so on this one particular day, she said, you know, can I, you know, I know where you're staying. Can I come over tomorrow? There are a lot of things I want to talk to you about. I go, oh, absolutely. Didn't think anything of it. She came over. The friend I took with me was Gary glad Gary was there because she showed up she didn't have a whole lot of clothes on now I think she not she didn't think anything of it she had these very skimpy shorts and some very skimpy shirt I don't think she thought a thing about it but with Gary there it was great so we got down the business which was her questions and that's what we talked about for two hours and then she went her way now as far as I know even to this day she's never become a believer I don't know what all her intentions were I know that she had a lot of needs she had been betrayed by a lot of men in her life. There's all kind of stuff going on. Stuff I really didn't need to know about and wasn't going to address because her knee was Christ. But we, we want to make sure that we take that approach, that we recognize that we, we don't have the strength. Satan's been in the business of tempting human beings for over 6,000 years. He understands our weaknesses. And you and I will never be able to outsmart him or be more clever than he is. It's just not going to happen. So we need to take the very simple precautions that are given to us in the Word of God. And so again, He does deliver us from the power of sin. He will in the future deliver us as He promises to finally set us free from the very presence of sin. Someday we will no longer have a sin principle within us. We will be redeemed in completeness. We will be glorified. In fact, one individual said it this way, we will be totally monopolized by God's holiness. What a great day that would be. Finally, Paul urges us to take up a weapon in trustful receptivity. Remember, I said that's the way that we describe this idea of taking up the armor. And of course, here, specifically as you read through this passage, it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit penetrated the believer's heart with conviction when he gave us the new birth. He uses the Word of God to nourish our Christian growth. He ministers the Word of God through us in witnessing to the lost as well as in edifying other believers. That is always the goal. If Whenever you are involved in any situation where you're giving advice to another believer, not only do you want to make sure that the advice you give them would be biblical advice or sound biblical advice, but the goal is always to help them to grow in their knowledge of the Word of God. So we don't just give them the, uh, a few sentences that are based on Scripture, it's important to explain how we got that, where that comes from, 
why we think that way. You may not remember the exact reference. That's okay. Don't worry about all those kinds of things. The idea is to be able to explain, basically, even if you have to say, well, all I know is in the New Testament, it says, and then tell them what the Scripture says. And because of that, we think this way, we think this way, therefore we make this decision. That's what we want to make sure that we do. That is edifying. That's building them up in the faith. And we use the Word of God to do that. So it's not what we think. It's what we think based on what the Scripture teaches us, but it's never what we think apart from that or separated from the Word of God. So here, faith wards off the enemy arrows by the Word of God because that's what the Spirit of God utilizes. It's important to notice that Christ himself, again, as I mentioned, is every part of the armor to Christians. It's Christ. He is the truth. The truth and the Son that sets them free. He wears... Christ wears the girdle of truth in the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. Christ is also our righteousness. Whether we're speaking of the righteousness that's imputed or righteousness that's imparted, and he has put on righteousness like a breastplate. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17. It reads this way. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. And his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. In other words, because of her depraved condition, which is Israel, no one but the Lord could save Israel. Being displeased with her injustice, God realized that there was no one to intercede on her behalf. So Isaiah was not saying here that the Lord did not want to get involved, but that Israel was totally incapable of helping herself. Only God could help her. This is true of salvation in any era. No one can save himself. Only God can forgive sin. Only God can change a person's heart. In this Isaiah passage, in his power, God provided salvation, both spiritual and physical. And it says for him, this is Israel personified as a man. Like a warrior, God goes forth to fight for his people. Righteousness is his breastplate, and salvation is his helmet. God's other garments here are vengeance and zeal. God supplies righteousness and salvation for his people, and he zealously executes vengeance on his enemies. Because of this, everywhere, people everywhere will acknowledge his glory, his overpowering majesty, and strength. That is why the the Old Testament is filled with all of these, what we would call unusual battles that Israel wins. So that it becomes very clear that they were delivered by the hand of God. Not because their army was superior, not because their army had superior numbers or superior weapons. It was God. You think of battles like when Gideon, when they wiped out the Midianites with 300 men that had basically water pitchers and torches. And the entire enemy was wiped out. Who are you going to credit in that? These men break the pictures and stomp on them? I don't know, this is some kind of witchcraft? No. God causes great panic and the Midianites wipe themselves out. What an incredible thing. Or the time where basically there's this large army outside of the walls of Jerusalem and a couple of lepers one morning come across the camp and everyone's gone. Another time where the army was just found dead, and it goes on and on. And of course, for many individuals, their favorite story, you know, when Israel wiped out the city of Jericho by 
using this method, marching around the city every day, one time, and blowing a trumpet and shouting praises to the Lord. Imagine if we had a general, they say that. Well, we're going to, we finally had enough of, of Russia. So we're, we're going, we're in the Moscow, and we're going to march around the city every day. And we're going to sing praises to God. Now we might think, wow, that's pretty cool. I guarantee you most of the country is not thinking that. They're thinking that someone or some group has lost their mind. But nonetheless, it's clear that God is the one who is delivered. So again, Christ is the army, is the armor. And when Paul writes of this armor in a composite sweep, he personalizes it in Romans chapter 13, where he tells us in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Same kind of language, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way he says in Ephesians, to put on the armor of God. Christians put on Christ when we're putting on the new man who is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, created to do good works. Can anything be more important than can anything be more important than this in the life to which God has called Christians? Can anything be more urgent than showing forth Christ full armor to the glory of God? And the answer is no. And I want to bring that to a close by saying this that when we celebrate communion, We are celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are celebrating the power of the gospel to transform lives and to save. And it begins by thinking and expressing our thanks to God for what he's done for us. And again, remember that as we partake of communion, that in this ordinance that we participate in, we are uniting the past and the present and the future. We are reminding ourselves that in the past, Christ lived the sinless life. And gave himself up willingly to be tortured and crucified for our sin. And as we know, he, was, he did die and he was buried. And three days later, rose again from the dead. And that was done so that we would be forgiven of our sin and our transgression for all of our sin. But when we think about that, we're thinking about that in the present day. Because we are presently experiencing the effects of what Christ did 2,000 years ago. I am today clean because of what he did in the past. Today I've been delivered from my sin because of what Christ has done in the past. I am being freed from the power of sin because of what Christ has done in the past. I stand here, you stand here, you sit here today forgiven of all of your unrighteousness. Every sinful thing you've done and said and thought and will do, say, and think. Because the price has been paid in full. And with that, we also then, as we partake of these elements, as we think on those things, look forward to the future. That the one who died for us rose for us, and as he said, is coming again. He is coming for us. And those of us who have been saved by Christ will be delivered completely from the powers of this age. And will be ushered into the new kingdom with him. In fact, Christ told his disciples that it was the last time he was going to be eating with them. And that he would do it one more time with them. And that was in the future when he would return. So the past and the present and the future is all rolled up in what we're doing here this evening. And we should do so out of a heart that is just so grateful to God for what he's done.